I'll be reading James 2, 1 through 13. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into you, your meeting, dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and distressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you, but you say to the poor, poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgment and guidance by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. You may sit down. Thank you, Justin. I don't know about you, but as he was reading that, I was like, what does this mean? And I've already preached it once, so that's uh, interesting. Uh, hey, we're continuing going through the, the book of James, the letter of James, this New Testament letter together. And to start today, we've reached chapter 2, and to start today, I want to I read a quote to you from uh, Flannery O'Connor, famous author. She said in a letter that she wrote defending her sometimes extreme writing style, if you've ever read her stuff, she was writing to a friend of hers and she said this phrase, she said, you have to push as hard as the age that pushes against you. You have to push as hard as the age that pushes against you. If you're familiar with any of O'Connor's stuff, you know that she used shock and discomfort in her stories, a very religious woman, but would use shock and, and, and discomfort in her stories to the point where her critics hated her for it. But she did it because she said, and these are her words, that she wanted to create a sacred space, a hint of the spiritual to encourage her readers to entertain the possibility of a reality that transcends our mundane existence. And I bring up that quote uh, to get us started because what James is teaching us today, these scriptures that we're reading today is probably the most counter cultural message in the entire letter to the people. I can't think of a way that we would need to push as hard against the culture that pushes against us as in the topic that, that James is covering today. And what we're challenged to learn goes against every fiber of our being because it fights the air that we breathe and the messages that we consume daily. These verses 
confront, they're going to force us to confront how we judge people, how we treat people, and specifically how we define a, a good person and a good life. This is what James is getting at today. He's, he, at first read, it kind of seems like he's helping church ushers know how to be better ushers, but that's not what he's talking about. He, he's talking about how we as people define a good person and how we define a, a, good, a good life. And today, as we're going through these verses together, we are going to be forced to push against a culture that, that pushes against us, an idea, a message um, that pushes against us. Now, if you're using an NIV Bible or an NLT Bible, we have uh, NLT Bibles uh, in, somewhere around you in a seat or a back um, that we want you to use. If you're new here and you see that, you're more than welcome to use it. Matter of fact, you can take it with you. Just don't tell them I said you could do that. Because um, I think it's so bold to steal a Bible. I just think that is... <laughs> I got it's bold. And I hope every time you look at it, you remember where you got it. But you're not stealing it because I'm, letting you, I'm telling you to take it. Um, but if you have an NIV or an NLT Bible, there the, above the start of chapter 2, where we read 1 through 13, there's a heading, there's a title there that says, A Warning Against Prejudice. A Warning Against Prejudice. And when you hear that word prejudice, it can bring to mind a lot of different things, a lot of different, you can feel a lot of different emotions. Obviously, we live in a very um, polarizing, uh, hostile political environment right now. Uh, over the last maybe two to three years, lots of talk about prejudice and discrimination. That's not a new conversation. It's been around forever, but whatever politician is needing to get elected at whatever time makes it feel as if it's worse or than it's ever been or a new topic. And it's not, it's always been around. But I bring that up to say that when we see the word prejudice, for a lot of us, what comes to mind is the idea of skin color, black, white, you know, discrimination. But, I, but I, as, as best we can, I want you to try to take that idea of, of skin color and I want you to try to put it to the side because what James is getting at today is much more than skin color. He, he wants to get at the heart of why we show favoritism or have prejudice or discrimination in any type of way. And the challenge we face sometimes is we feel like prejudice only runs one way. That only white people are, you know, white people are prejudiced against black people or only rich people are prejudiced against poor people or only young people are prejudiced against old people. But what we know about prejudice and discrimination is that it, it goes every different way. That you can be poor and be prejudiced against rich people and rich people against poor people and black people can be prejudiced against white people and white people, black people and Hispanic people and Chinese people and old people and young people can be resentment both ways. And so if you only look through the lens of skin color and what we're reading today, you're not going to get the entire message of, of what James is trying to say, because he's going to go a lot deeper. And what he's really trying to get at is, is why and why we shouldn't prejudge. That's what prejudice means. Like the original form of the word just comes from the idea of making prejudgments, making prejudgments. And so James is teaching us that those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, that, that there is this danger of living our life making prejudgments about people, 
We all do it. We all do it. But he's obviously trying to make the point here that if your faith is in Jesus, you, you should not make the same judgments about people that, that people who don't have a faith in Jesus would make about people. That a faith in Jesus, an experience with Jesus Christ, a, a receiving of the grace of God, of the mercy of God, should fundamentally change the way that you judge a person different from somebody who hasn't had that experience. I mean, I want you to think about that for a second. I mean, that's, that's a pretty important idea. That if those of us in the room today say we have experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, the life of Christ in our souls, but we live in this culture judging people and treating people the same way that those, of, that those who haven't experienced the love of Christ, what is it that we even believe in? What is it that we even have? What experience is it that we even have? Now, I grew up in um, evangelical 90s youth group, okay? So I've seen every church drama about, you know, going to hell and people are like, why didn't you tell me? And like all, like all of these things, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Trust me, don't YouTube it. <laughs> but I know as I say some of this, I, I, the idea is we, we talk about how we treat people and we mean it in like an evangelistic way. Have you told somebody about Jesus? You know, we should be the kindest people. We should be the most compassionate. People. And those things are true. But we're not just talking about the action. James is not saying you can think things about people, but don't say it out loud. You don't have to mean it, but just really be kind to people. If you don't have anything nice, don't say anything at all. Like he's not saying fake it till you make it about how you treat people. He's saying internally inside of you, before you met Jesus to after you met Jesus, you should fundamentally see human beings in a different way. And to do this, make this point, he is going to show us how we make snap judgments and react to rich people and poor people. It's just one example. He's not just talking about rich people and poor people, and he's not just talking about where you should seat them in church. He, he, but he's going to use this as an example because there's probably no area of life where Christians need to push as hard against the age that pushes against us than in the area of how we define success and importance and wealth and status and value people. It's so easy subtly to define success the same way that a culture that doesn't believe in Jesus Christ defines success. It's so easy for us to define value based on a way a culture that doesn't believe in Jesus Christ defines value. And so James uses this example that a rich person walks into a church service. Now there's two people at play here. There are the ushers who respond to the rich person making a snap judgment, but there's also the person who shows up obviously trying very hard to be seen in a certain way. So you have culture at play in both ways. You have the person who wants to be seen as important and you have the people who believe that wealthy people are more important. So you have both dynamics at play and, and we experience both dynamics every day ourselves, how we're seen and how we view other, other people. And the question that I have been kind of ruminating over the last little while is why is this topic so important that in this tiny little letter, remember James is writing what could be the first kind of passed around Christian document, the how-to Christian guide. It's five chapters, it's small, it's first generation Christians. 
He hits 11 different topics. Why would prejudice and discrimination be so important that he feel like it deserves a section? And even more importantly, why does it matter to you and me 2,000 years later? And a secular society would say to us, you know what? It's not that big a deal anymore. We're more enlightened now. We've come farther now. We've progressed now. We're so much more civilized than, you know, our ancestors or people who own slaves or the Crusades or the Romans or we, we, are, we are so much farther along now. But I think we probably all know that's not true. And two, three, five hundred years from now, they're going to look back at us and be like, man, those people were idiots, right? Because the problem is not, while there are ways to attack it from a society standpoint, at the core of the issue is sin, and sin's not going anywhere in the human heart. And James obviously felt like this was important enough to take some time and that it was an issue that is crucial to the way that a faith in Jesus Christ affects the way that we live our daily life. Now, I want to give you a Jason definition of, of prejudice and discrimination. This is, I'm totally made this up myself because this is the way it made sense in my head. So don't tell this to anybody smart and ask them if it's true. I'm just telling you how this is a work. My, my definition uh, to get at, at some of this. I'm defining prejudice and discrimination as a truth attached to an assumption. A truth attached to an assumption. And here's what I mean. Whether it's skin color, money, age, or beauty, in a millisecond, we make assumptions about people. And those assumptions then connect themselves to a truth that we believe that we established before we ever made an assumption about a person. Whether it was how we were raised or what our parents told us or the neighborhood we grew up in or the media we consumed or whatever it is, we have an established set of truths. If you've ever debated politics with someone or debated economics with someone or uh, welfare with someone or public education with someone, what you discover is that we have built-in truths that we have decided on and then we take those truths and then we see people and in a millisecond make an assumption about a person and then attach that to a truth so that in less than a second, we believe something to be true about someone based on a snap judgment. Does that make sense? It's an assumption that's attached to a truth. So we believe certain things to be true based solely on public appearance, outer appearance. And what I want to do just so we can all be on the same page, because I know some of you right now are thinking, I don't do that. I, it's going to be a lot easier for us to get where we're trying to go if we will all fully admit that we all do this, that we all are prejudiced, that we all discriminate, that we all show favoritism. And so to, to kind of get us all on the same page, I put together a couple of images that I want to show you and ask you some questions and I just want to see what instinctually your mind says to you. All right? So let's do this together. I'm going to show you the first picture. Who's happier? Now, you're already done. You already made up your mind. I don't have to give you five seconds. You already decided. The moment it came up on the screen, you made your decision. Why? Because you made a, a millisecond assumption attached to a lifelong truth you've always believed. 
And there, there, there is a truth you believe about people who look like that. And there's a truth you believe about people who look like that. And so you assume one of these guys are happier and you believe a truth based on that. Can't help it. You did it, right? Let's look at the second one. Who's more dangerous? You're done. You, are, you decided like a, three seconds ago. In a matter of a millisecond, you looked and you, you, you have, you make an assumption about somebody who looks like that and somebody who looks like that. And you have a truth that you believe about somebody who looks like that and somebody who looks like that. And you've believed those truths for a really long time, but every interaction with a person is an assumption attaching itself to a truth. Let's look at the next one. Who's more insecure? You're done. You, you already decided. Because you, you, you assume that people who look a certain way feel a certain way, and other people who look a certain way have to feel a certain way. And there's a truth based on an assumption. Let me show you one more. Let me give you this last one. Who's a better mom? In your mind, there is a, there's, a, there is a, there's a type of person who is a better mom, a quality, an appearance, uh, something that they, they do. And in less than a second, you made a decision about the value of a person. It didn't even take you a second because you have a truth that is built into your life, however you picked it up. And the reason James believes this is so important to talk about for everybody, but especially people who have put their faith in Christ, is because you're not just having an opinion, you are defining the value of a person based on a decision that takes you less than a second and a truth that you have believed most of your life. Before we were even old enough to know we were being influenced, we were being taught how to define people's worth and our self-worth based solely on public appearance. I, I was um, thinking about this uh, this week. That one of the things that shaped my life, and my mom passed away now, so she'll never be able to listen to this podcast, so I'll feel safe saying this, but one of the things that shaped my life as a kid Every Sunday, my mom, uh, we, my dad was always like the guest speaker. And then my, my family would sing. And then we were like the traveling church service. And, uh, and so we would wake up early and we would travel to these churches and, and uh, we'd be in our pajamas. But then my mom would take our clothes with us and then we would change in the car. And then she'd like lick her hands and fix her hair. And, I figured out and she would say the same thing every time before we'd get out of the car. Some of you moms say this too. She'd say, don't you embarrass me. <laughs> I knew she loved me. It wasn't about, you know, is this my real mother or anything like that. But every time we would get ready to get out of our car and walk into a room, she would say, don't you embarrass me. And then we'd leave church and we'd go to lunch with the pastor. And she would say, and we're going to go in here and have lunch with this pastor. Don't you embarrass me. And, and before I was even old enough to realize that I was being taught that one of the most important things about me was making sure that certain people that were important didn't see me a certain way. 
And you have those too. This is not just my story. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and he was talking about how um, his family was selected as the family for this big Baptist church he grew up in as the family to go on the billboard in the town. And so his church was literally the billboard for what like the perfect family looked like. And he said his mom, before they would get out of the car to go to church, his mom would say, people know who we are. Don't you ruin that. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. And look, I just wanted candy on the way home. I didn't realize I was being shaped in that moment, but I was being shaped. And when you would bring home a report card or when you would score a goal or when you would get in trouble, you were being shaped too. And before we were even old enough to, be, to know that we were being shaped and formed, we were learning what is valuable. We were learning how to define worth, how to feel worth something, all connected to, to public appearance and, 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 uh, and accomplishments. And then, and then we get saved and we bring that into our Christian walk. And so, yes, we're a new creature in Christ. That's the old has passed away, but we also are very, very discontent because we think if I was the boss at work, then I would, you know, my life would be better and I would be here and I would be somebody. Or we think if I looked, I looked this way or I, or I weighed a certain amount or if I lived in that neighborhood, but, you know, I've used, I've used this example a lot just because I'm 37 and, and this, is, this is like, you know, sees life like, like mid, mid adult, adult, whatever it's called. But it's like, you like, like your house until your, your group of friends upgrades. And then you like your house, house anymore. You notice that? Everybody notice that? Whatever you have fine and, and until the people that you spend time with have some more. And then you go, you go you're just, there's this discon- discontentment, right? And it's because we're defining our worth. We don't even realize we're defining our worth and our value to you. And it's all based on the outside. And this is why culture's message is different from Christianity's message. Because Christianity's message says everything comes from the inside out. But culture's message says everything works from the outside in. So if you will get everything outside of you right, then who you are on the inside will be right. So if who you are on the inside is not right, obviously you need to fix something on the outside of you. That's culture's message. Go there, be this, do that, buy that. that. That's culture's message. And that is going. So today when you watch TV and you're watching football, I want you to watch all the commercials and I want you to notice how every commercial is telling you that you're not something, but if you buy this, you'll be something. Everyone. It could be a pizza, a beer, an app. But Christianity says that everything works from the inside out. So that if you get the soul right, then everything else in your life, it won't necessarily be right, but it, it won't, it won't be, it won't define you or take away what you have on, on the inside. This is why we have to push as hard against the culture that pushes us because fame is really the last area of transcendence in our society. We've kind of deconstructed and torn down everything that we ever kind of looked up to except fame. Fame is still the last piece of transcendence. That we don't want to admit it, we'd be totally embarrassed to say it, but we do believe Kim Kardashian's life in some way is better than ours. LeBron James it's, 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 it's outer worldly. It's not like we have a normal life, but he, but she has 
Like, yeah, they're human, and maybe they have bad days, but not like my bad days. And there, there is this idea that more of a following, more notoriety, more money, more power, whatever it is, that really is the key that would unlock this transcendent experience that I'm searching for in my life. Now, listen, if you're under the age of 40, it's pretty bad. If you're under the age of 30, it's really bad, but it's still something all of us struggle with. If you're 65 and you just got on Facebook two years ago, it's there too. Like you, we, it, it is, it's the air that we breathe. It's pushing against us at all times that says, I'm nobody if I'm not somebody and they're somebody. So they are not just normal. They're, they're something else. And I, I want to be, I want to be that. I want to be that. And there is a, there is a great example in the Old Testament of this, um, when you probably know this story, but when the prophet Samuel is sent by God to anoint the next king of Israel, Saul, uh, that's a whole nother sermon. Like he's got all the outer appearance, but he doesn't have the internal. And, and so God says, I'm done with him. We're picking somebody else. And so God sends the prophet Samuel to anoint the next king. And uh, he goes to Jesse's house because that's where God tells him to go. It's in 1 Samuel 16, 7. Uh, 16, six and seven. And this is what it says. It says, when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, this is the oldest son. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said, don't judge by his appearance or his height for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Here it is again. This is the Christian message compared to the cultural message. And Samuel did what you and I do. We do it all the time. We do it every day. We say we don't judge books by cover, but we totally judge books by cover. That's why they have covers on them is because that's how we decide what to buy. And we do it with people too. And so Samuel walks in and look, Samuel, is, Samuel has bought into the cultural message. Samuel says, because he's impressive outwardly, he's got to be impressive inwardly. And God's like, no. And then David comes in and David, it's not that he's, it's not, that he's not impressive outwardly. He's just not as impressive outwardly. But inwardly, he has what God is, is looking for. And so we, we go around consumed by this message of culture that says, if the outside's good, I'm sure the inside's good too, right? We do this in church. This morning, if, if um, there was a new couple that visited the church, I've been guilty of this as the pastor, the staff, we've done this, but new family visits the church and they walk in and they, there's a husband and a wife and, and three kids you know, three little girls and they're not like exactly matching because that's a little weird, but they're color coordinated matching. And, um, you know, the dad's fit, little tan. Um, the, the, the wife is attractive. She's fit. They smile, great teeth. Uh, they are engaging, you know. Without even realizing it, we kind of make the assumption they're good spiritually. Like they must be doing good. They, they probably would, are not depressed. They probably are not faithless. They probably are not struggling. They're not hurting. They're not, because look at the outside. This is what Samuel did. This is what, what we did. But if somebody walked in and they stunk and it was obvious they were still drunk and they had a trash bag full of their clothes and they haven't you know, bathed, they're shaved, we see their outer appearance and we say there's obviously something wrong with them. 
and there may very, very well be something wrong with them. But based on their outer appearance, just like Samuel, we say that person obviously is good and that person is obviously is bad and we put value on people. We put value on people. And then what we do is we do it to ourselves because the way and the standards that we use to judge other people is the way that we judge ourselves, define our worth. I came back from the sabbatical um, uh, in August and, um, you know, I did a lot of emotional eating this summer. And so I was up a little poundage and my daughter, who was 12 at the time, who has no fear of saying whatever she wants to me, I, I was wearing a shirt one day and she's like, dang, dad, that shirt's a little tight. You got that, sab-. she said, you got that sabbatical bod. That's what she said to me. She's like, dang, dad, you got that sabbatical bod. I was like, you're grounded for life. Get away. Um, she wasn't wrong. And so I was like, all right, you know what? I, I want to lose some weight. I want to get healthy. Andrew and I started talking, started working, getting this plan. It's going great. Thanks for asking. And I, I um, but here's why I tell you that, because I, I bet you do this too. I don't know. Maybe you do, but I think you do. I will step on the scale. And if I am up 0.2 pounds, it says something about who I am as a human being. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I would be willing to bet that a lot of you feel that way. Like 0.2 pounds. Like I could have had an extra bite of an apple, you know, or drinking a cup of water. But 0.2 pounds says I'm a failure. 0.2 pounds says I'll never get it together. 0.2 pounds says this is pointless. 0.2 pounds says people will never take you seriously because you don't have any self-discipline. 0.2 pounds. 0.2 pounds. Maybe it's not your weight. Maybe it's the amount of money you have. You could have a bank account balance that has $10,001 and you're somebody. But if you have $9,999, you're nobody. Two bucks. Two bucks. We are so submerged in a culture that says what you are on the outside, what you accomplish and how you look defines your value and what you are worth. And we buy it and we we take it in and we bring it into the church and we do it the exact same way. We make the mistake that Samuel made. We show favoritism, prejudice, and discriminate based on outer appearance. And James says to us, you cannot do that. You can't do that because for people of faith and a relationship with Jesus should fundamentally reshape the way that you see the world and that you value and you treat people. And the question is why? question is why? Why is it that a relationship with Jesus should fundamentally reshape the way we see the world and treat and value people? Why does this have to be a Christian message? Why can't this be a general message for everybody? Which is a valid question, another sermon for another time. But the short answer is because if you don't believe in God, then we're all just chemicals anyway. So there's no value in treating people kindly or loving people. The reason this has to be a Christian message and the reason that the Christians should be the most excelling at treating people differently and giving dignity and value to people is because we believe that a life has value and worth because it was created in the image of God and was worth dying for by the Son of God. But if you don't believe in God, you have zero foundational principles for why it matters how I treat anybody. 
we're just, it's all, it's all pointless anyway. And so the irony is the culture would say, don't be religious, but be really kind to people. Why? What's the point? We are compelled by God and by the model of Jesus Christ to see people made in the image of God and to see people's souls as worthy of the life of the Son of God. That is why we do it. And so when we find ourselves not, when we find ourselves showing favoritism or discriminating or showing prejudice, it is because we have forgotten the gospel message. We've forgotten the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the good news that you are more broken and sinful than you ever dare to believe. But you are more loved by God than you could ever believe. And that Jesus, God himself in man form came because nothing could save you but the life of the son of God. And he came and you didn't just need forgiveness, you needed a savior. And he came to be that savior because you're more broken and sinful than you ever believed, but more loved by God too. And in order to believe that, in order to become a Christian, there has to be a moment where you humbly accept the lowly, degrading truth about who you are. Now it gets better after that because the spirit of Christ and the life of Christ raises you up with him. But you cannot become a Christian until there is at least a moment through the power of the Holy Spirit where you recognize that you are spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing to offer to God. You have nothing that you could even bring to God to say, it's not a lot, but it's something that you could use to maybe get me in. To be a Christian is a recognition that says, the only thing that could save me is a savior. The life and the blood of Jesus Christ. It's why we can't incorrectly assume that being a Christian means becoming to church or being a Christian means being a better dad or a mom or being a better citizen or being a giver or serving or being a better citizen or fighting for Christian values or any of these things where we say, you know what, Christianity is about, it's earned through the things that I do. You can only become a Christian when through the power of the Holy Spirit, you recognize, admit, and receive the fact that you are completely incapable of being good enough to save yourself. We say it all the time around here. All it takes to be a Christian is nothing, but most people don't have it. We come to God desperately trying to prove our worth and why we need it. And so when we start treating people poorly or viewing them down or, or, or overviewing them up, it's because we have forgotten where worth comes from, where value comes from, where dignity comes from. You'll never be able to show mercy. James said it. He said, so whatever you do in verse 12, remember you'll be judged by the law that sets you free. There'll be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. In essence, he's saying you'll never be able to show mercy if you do not believe at your core that you need mercy. Only mercy receivers can be mercy givers. The only way to become a Christian is to have a moment when you realize 
you don't just need forgiveness, you need mercy, you need grace, you need a savior, you need a different way. Your faith cannot be in yourself anymore. And so if, if you have Jesus, but you don't feel rich enough, or if you have Jesus, but you don't feel important enough, or you have Jesus, but you don't feel connected enough, or you have Jesus, but you don't feel validated enough, you will treat people differently. You'll have to. You'll have no other choice. You'll have to, because you'll have to find your self-esteem and validation through something other than the life and the death of Jesus Christ. We defined sin two weeks ago as finding your self-esteem through anything other than Jesus. This is what James is getting at here is that he says in verse, in verse five, he said, hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom promised to those who's loved him? James is saying, when you receive Jesus, you inherit the kingdom of God. And so while in this world, you may be poor or nobody or overlooked or whatever it is you may have, you should feel as if you are rich because you've inherited the kingdom of God. But, don't, but you dishonor the poor. How do we dishonor the poor? We dishonor the poor when we make it sound like what they need is to not be like that and to be rich, to, to accomplish something here. He says, you dishonor the poor, isn't the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? And aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Now, what's he saying? Rich people can't be Christians? Of course not. We're all rich. Everyone in this room is rich on the worldwide scale. He's not saying all poor people will go to he uh, heaven and all rich people will go to hell. But he is saying something that's so true that if you look back historically, you will see that Christianity has grown and spread like wildfire in the poorest communities and in the poorest countries and in the most overlooked and in the most underdog because there is something about being more willing to admit that you are incapable of saving yourself and those who actually see and are convinced that that is true about them. That's why Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying rich people can't be saved. But in order to be saved, you have to have a moment where you admit you're spiritually bankrupt. Your accomplishments, your connections, your, your intelligence, it's not what gets you in. And it's easier for whatever reason for a poor person to come to terms with that than for a rich person. At the bottom. And some of you, that's why you're here right now. Things were going fine and then things weren't going fine. And so you're like, well, I'll give church a try. And thank God you were at the bottom because you realized you had nothing, right? But when you receive Christ, you come in broken, but the message is not just brokenness. The message is not just woe is me or, or how awful you are. The message is I'm admitting it's true and I believe it's true. And now I inherit the kingdom of God and the riches of Christ, That means that as, I, as a human being, there are gonna be things that I want. I want some things. I want some things. But because I have Jesus, I can say, God help me to believe there's nothing else that I need. There's some things that I want, but there's nothing else that I need. But if I don't believe that and you don't believe that, then when we see somebody who could give us what we need, whether we know we need it or not, we will treat them differently than somebody who cannot give us what we believe we need. There is a song that I was thinking about this morning, an old song. I was thinking about traveling and singing with my parents, so it made me think about the old songs we used to sing. A lot of you will know this song, but 
it's an old song called I'd Rather Have Jesus. I was just thinking about the lyrics. It said, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than riches untold. Maybe. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than worldly applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. Yes, I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. We're gonna pray a prayer together as a congregation in just a second, but I struggled all week. I told Andrea last night, we were sitting outside and I struggled all week to really figure out like how to like really accept this in my heart. Cause it's actually pretty easy to preach a message that, that like I could broadcast to you, but then not actually internalize in myself. And even last night at like 10 o'clock, I was like, I don't got it yet. Like I, I, yeah, I know what it means, but like to fully embrace this in my soul. And if I'm not fully embracing my soul, I can't ever expect you to fully embrace it. But I think, I think it's this. I actually didn't say this in the first service because it hit me in between services. But I want you to imagine for a moment that we're sitting here right now. And I said, guys, to close out service, I'm gonna bring in LeBron James. That'd be epic if I was like, LeBron and, and like the everything and just everybody's just like, oh my gosh. And some of you are like, who's LeBron? Don't even worry about it. Or who, whoever it is, Chip and Joanna Gaines. I just went totally in the opposite of the spectrum. Everywhere. Warren Buffett, whoever. Let's just take LeBron, okay? I said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna bring LeBron up here. He's gonna close us. I asked him just to share something inspirational for you guys, just to, you know, help us out. LeBron comes in. What, like, what would be happening to you in that moment? Like some of y'all would be, I know Clark Langford, he'd be freaking out, you know, he'd want, he'd want an autograph for sure. We'd all have different feelings about it or whatever, but A couple of things would happen in that moment. The first and really dangerous thing that would happen is that you would assume that LeBron James is someone that you should look up to. You would assume that he's someone you should listen to. You would assume that he's someone whose opinion you need to take into your life. You would assume that he's responsible. You would assume that he's mature. You would assume that he hasn't made any mistakes you've heard about or cheated on his wife or... And somewhere in there, as you begin to connect those dots, whether you even realized you were doing it or not, you would assume that LeBron James is a Christian. Now, I don't know if he is or not. This is not, I'm not saying he is or he isn't, so don't, that's not my job. But let's assume for this example, he's not, because I don't know. You would assume because on the outside, he seems responsible, mature, has money, smiles, good with people, that what's happening on the inside is all good. That's the first thing that would happen, and that's really dangerous. But the second thing that would probably happen is you would see someone not as a human being, 
you would see someone as a character. You'd see someone as a, as a symbol. And that means that you would be incapable of seeing a soul that needs mercy. The chances are, if you walked in here today, very few of us would think, I wonder if I need to go share Jesus with him. We wouldn't see a soul with mercy. But here's the last thing that I was thinking about. This is the thing I was thinking about in between service. And this is the really like dangerous, sick thing. Is if LeBron walked up here and he said, I'll trade places with you. You can be me and I'll be you. Everything that goes with it, emotionally, spiritually, internal, physical features. I'm 5'9", bad left knee, heartburn very easily, okay? <laughs> He's a God physically. He's worth a billion plus. He's in movies. My kid still pees in the bed. So LeBron says to me, I'll trade spots with you. You get to be me and I get to be you. Now let's assume for this example, LeBron James does not know Jesus. You know what's ridiculously scary? I probably wanna do it. You're kidding me? I get to live in LA. I get to be like 6'9", like chiseled, like an ice sculpture. I get to be wealthy. I get to be famous. I get to win championships. Like, could we say, and I'm not saying this for guilt because I'm really saying it to myself. Could we honestly say, could we really, really say like, LeBron, thank you, but you should want to trade places with me. 5'9", bad knee, heartburn. Because I have the riches of Christ. Now he may, I don't know if he does or he doesn't. So please don't, let's don't, you know, let LeBron know I said that. But <laughs> let's just say he doesn't. Warren Buffett, Kim Kardashian, whoever it is, I'll trade places with you. You get my life, my soul, my feelings, my thoughts, my, my, my work ethic. You get it all. I get all of you. What James is saying to us here is that if we have experienced the mercy of Jesus Christ, there's nothing about us that should feel poor. And there's nothing about us that should envy the rich. We should recognize that we were poor. It's what brought us to Christ, but the love and the grace and the mercy of Christ filled us with the riches and gives us an inheritance to the kingdom of God. And listen, I don't know what LeBron is or what he isn't, but I know that when he dies, if he doesn't know Jesus, it won't matter. All the money, all the stuff, it won't matter. And so could we really say to those people that we look up to, that transcendent fame, whatever, could we really say like, honestly, LeBron, you should want my sabbatical bod. <laughs> because let me tell you what you get with it. The riches of the kingdom of God. So maybe that's the challenge, but we're gonna pray and take communion, but maybe that's our challenge today. Whoever it is you envy the most, look up to the most, maybe it's like a Mormon blogging mom on Instagram or an author, an athlete, or a parent, or an investor, or a CEO, whoever it is, 
would you, like, let's say they didn't know Jesus and they said, I'll trade spots with you. If there is that part of us that's like, oh my gosh, yes. What we're having to admit to ourselves is Jesus doesn't make us feel rich. Jesus doesn't make us feel validated. Jesus doesn't make us feel important. There's something else out there that I need because Jesus isn't enough. God, help me to, to see that mercy's enough, grace is enough, that when I got you, I got everything. So we're gonna read this prayer. And as we're taking communion today, maybe you would say, maybe that's a time for you to have an honest conversation with God. Band, come on up about what you feel like you have in him and what you feel like you don't have in him. Because if you don't get to the heart of the matter, you'll try to bite your lip and work really hard to be kind to people. But that's not what James is saying. So I wanna pray this prayer together. You got your worship guide, pull that out. Um, we'll pray this and at the end, you can join me in the bold part at the bottom. But we give you these each week, first of all, to pray together as a congregation, but second of all, to, for you to take with you to, to kind of implement these into the rhythms of your day and your week. Let's pray this together. Oh God, I bring to you now my motives, judgments, opinions, and reactions. You command me, Lord, to love my neighbor as myself, but at times I struggle to obey when my neighbor doesn't remind me of myself. Buried beneath my opinions and actions are seeds of prejudice and favoritism so deep. I struggle to even notice their root, that their roots entangle my heart. Uproot all arrogance and insecurity that would prompt me to dismiss or disdain others, judging them with a less generous measure than I judge myself. I am hypocritical, excusing in some the very things I disdain in others, but you, O oh Lord, are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Make me more like you. Pray this with me. Show me mercy as I show mercy. Give me grace as I give grace. Forgive me as I forgive others. And shower me with your love as I love those around me. Amen.